everyone, and welcome to this Hardwick video, if you're watching, uh, and podcast, if you're listening. I'm Nye Maloney, and I'm joined today by my colleague in Chambers, Helena Drage. So today, we're going to have a look back over some prominent clinical negligence judgments that have been delivered in the last 12 months, and then have a look forward to what might be in store for clinical negligence practitioners over the rest of this year. We're likely, we think, to have time to rattle through maybe one or two cases each, but we'll put a list of all of the important cases of the year up on my blog and on the website, and the link to those should be in the description of the podcast or video. So that's enough from me. Uh, Helena, did you have a favourite case of 2020? I certainly did, uh, Nye. My top case for 2020 was the incredibly interesting Supreme Court case of Whittington and XX, uh, which was about whether a claimant can recover the cost of commercial surrogacy undertaken outside of the UK. Um, so by way of brief factual background, this matter arose from a case of negligent reporting of a cervical smear test in 2008, when a slide was incorrectly reported as negative when it showed pathology. The claimant had subsequent smears in February and September 2012, which were also incorrectly reported. The September slide showed pathology with invasive carcinoma. Biopsies were taken in September and October 2012, which were also incorrectly reported as showing merely pre-malignant changes. Um, the errors were detected in 2013 when it was discovered that the claimant had uh, cervical cancer. She underwent chemotherapy, which, uh, which would result in her inability, unfortunately, to bear a child. And, but for the defendant's negligence, there was a 95% uh, chance of a complete cure and the claimant would never have developed cancer and liability was admitted. Now, before her treatment, uh, the claimant underwent um, egg harvest and the claimant said uh, that she wished to have four children. And according to the expert evidence, the claimant would be able to have two children using her own frozen eggs and a further two children using donor eggs. It was the claimant's preference that she make use of commercial surrogacy arrangements in the US. Now, by way of background, fee-paying arrangements are unlawful in the UK, but there is nothing in the criminal law to stop prospective parents from entering into commercial agreements abroad. In the UK, surrogacy is permitted only on a non-commercial basis where expenses, if reasonable, can be paid. Um, so looking back at the case, at first instance, the uh, claim was dismissed and the judge was found that he was bound by the 2002 case of Briody and St. Helens and Knowsley Area Health Authority. Uh, it was found that the claim for commercial surrogacy was contrary to public policy and surrogacy using donor eggs did not restore the claimant's true loss on the basis that it did not restore her, restore her fertility or provide her with a genetically related child. Uh, but damages were awarded for the two own egg surrogacies in the UK. The claimant appealed that decision and the defendant cross appealed. Uh, the Court of Appeal dismissed the cross appeal and allowed the appeal. And then the defendant appealed to the Supreme Court. Now, the leading judgment in the Supreme Court was given by Lady Hale, with whom Lords Kerr and Wilson agreed. Lord Carnwath gave a dissenting judgment on one point with whom Lord Reed um, agreed. 
the Supreme Court was concerned with three issues um, when the hearing was heard, uh, when the case was heard at the Supreme Court. First, are damages to fund own egg surrogacy recoverable? Second, if so, are damages to fund surrogacy arrangements using donor eggs also recoverable? And third, in either event, are damages to fund the cost of commercial surrogacy in a country where such arrangements are not lawful recoverable? Uh, Briody was very much relevant to this appeal, as you can imagine. Um, in that case, the claimant underwent a subtotal hysterectomy. Uh, she claimed the cost of a Californian surrogacy. And Lady Hale herself gave the leading judgment in the Briody case and found that the costs associated with that foreign surrogacy were contrary to public policy of this country, i.e. the UK, um, clearly established in legislation, uh, that it would be quite unreasonable to expect a defendant to fund it. She found that in any event, it would not be reasonable to expect the defendant to pay for the implantation of the claimant's embryos when this had such a small chance of success. She also found that the surrogacy using donor eggs was not in any sense restorative of Miss Briody's position before she was so grievously injured. It is seeking to make up for some, some of what she has lost by giving her something different. Neither the child nor the pregnancy would be hers. Uh, Lady Hale set out the various ways in which developments in law and social attitudes have changed uh, since Briody was decided. Um, the Supreme Court also heard submissions in respect of, the, of illegality, and it was found that there was nothing the claimant proposed to do um, that involved a criminal offence, either here in the UK or abroad. So on the first issue, the court found that Briody did not rule out damages for own egg surrogacy arrangements made in the UK. The costs are recoverable, provided that the prospects of success are reasonable. On the second issue, Lady Hale said that the view expressed in Briody that damages for donor egg surrogacy could not be recovered as not restorative of what the claimant had lost was probably wrong then and was certainly wrong now. Uh, Lady Hale thus overruled herself, uh, finding that subject to reasonable prospects of success, damages could be recovered for the reasonable costs of UK surrogacy using donor eggs. On the third issue, it was found that the, the UK court will not enforce a foreign contract if it would be contrary to public policy, but it was in fact no longer contrary to public policy to award damages for a foreign surrogacy arrangement, provided that certain limiting factors applied. And those limiting factors were, well, the proposed programme for treatment had to be reasonable. It also had to be reasonable for the claimant to seek the foreign commercial arrangements proposed rather than to make um, arrangements here in the UK. And the court suggested that it was unlikely to be reasonable unless the foreign country had a well-established system in which the interests of all involved were properly safeguarded. And lastly, the costs involved had to be reasonable. So the defendant hospital's appeal was dismissed. Uh, now, the Lord, uh, Lord Carnwell dissented on the third issue, holding that it would be contrary to the prin to principle for the civil courts to award damages on the basis of conduct, which, if it was undertaken in this country, uh, would offend its criminal law. 
Um, so that's my case for 2020. I think it's uh, so interesting on the conceptual point of the um, core tortious principle of putting the claimant back in the position they would have been but for the negligence and how collective understanding of the idea of parenthood has changed over the past 20 years such that uh, Lady Hale overruled herself. Um, but with that, of course, practical difficulties remain. Uh, what is a properly safeguarded system? Uh, what costs are reasonable? Uh, and do those two things go hand in hand, such that the more regulation a system has, uh, the more well-established the system, uh, the more the treatment will cost? Um, and, and will that be factored in? So overall, a, a really interesting judgment legally and conceptually, um, but certainly practical difficulties remain. And, and I expect we will see more of these claims uh, in the future, perhaps on those practical issues. Yeah, so you're, case now. You're, you're right. It certainly was a really interesting case. And I, I'd wondered when I first read it how far some of those principles might extend to in, in other types of injuries and for other types of treatment. So... <clears throat> As I understand it, commercial surrogacy in this country is both illegal under the criminal law and unlawful in it. Uh, you, you can't form a, a lawful contract under UK contract law for commercial surrogacy. Is that is that right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, non-commercial with reasonable expenses, but not a commercial arrangement in this country. But um, unlike something, for example, like dignitas euthanasia it's, it's not illegal as i understand it to travel abroad form a contract abroad and then undertake commercial surrogacy arrangements in a foreign country like they did in this case in, in the us yeah absolutely there's a there's a real parallel there and, and do you think then that that's going to be the distinction if a claimant say in a delay in diagnosing cancer case was to bring a claim seeking the, to recover the costs of paying Dignitas and travelling to Dignitas and something like that. Do you think that that's a distinction that would render that uh, not recoverable? Or do you think that this is likely to be extended to recovery damages and those sorts of cases? Well, I, th I think the courts would be very keen to to, to narrow the applicability of, of the principle um, for fear of encroaching into the job of Parliament. Um, which is, of course, um, to legislate for these matters. But one can interpret this case to some extent as, as the Supreme Court giving Parliament a nudge to say, look, perhaps we do need to rethink the arrangements that are lawful in this country. Um, but having said that, this issue has been reviewed quite recently and Parliament um, didn't really have any motivation to change the current arrangements. Yeah. But I think on the broader point, I, I think this will be construed quite narrowly to the to the case of surrogacy. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a slightly different public policy type arguments as well, isn't it? Although I, it'd be an interesting one, because like we saw in this case of Lady Hale changing her own views on what society's attitude to this would be in the Briody case and then fast forward to this case. We've seen, I think, a, some sort of shift, whether it goes as far for um, euthanasia cases, I'm not quite sure, but certainly the CPS seem uh, a lot less interested in prosecuting people who are assisting dying patients to go to go, go abroad for euthanasia. So uh, possibly, let's, let's see what happens. Yeah, possibly. We certainly see in the CPS that if there is a prosecution, uh, 
the culpability is reflected uh, in the sentences that are given. Um, but I, I think this case is um, impressive in showing how the law adapts to um, society's attitudes changing. It shows the flexibility in the law, which can only be a good thing. Yeah. Great. So. Um, Moving on to your case, now, what, what's your case for, for 2020? So my, my case of the year was a case called XM and Leicestershire Partnership NHS Trust. And this case is all about what is the expected standard of care of a health visitor. Um, we see, don't we, much more often in our clinical negligence practices, cases against GPs or hospital doctors, nurses, midwives, those much more traditional branches of medicine, but I, I think much less often for healthcare professionals outside of those main qualifications. So uh, the facts of the case, I'm, I'm afraid, are pretty awful to digest, but to understand the, the, the case, needs. Uh, I'm afraid some looking at the chronology. So the claimant was born in June 2012, seemingly healthy at birth. Um, he underwent his first health visitor assessment at 13 days old. And at that point in time, his head circumference was measured with a, a tape measure at around the 25th centile. His weight was measured at just below the 15th centile. So um, head circumference on a slightly greater centile than the weight, but all essentially normal at that stage. The next health visitors check was at six weeks old, so about four weeks later. By that time, the head circumference had increased considerably. So it was at this point uh, over the 50th centile, having been at the 25th four weeks earlier. The baby's weight had increased um, but remained at the 15th centile for someone at six weeks old. So um, following that, the claimant's parents then missed a planned six to eight weeks check with their GP. They did receive the notice to attend, um, but the health visitor at the six weeks check didn't make any real mention of it and certainly didn't impress upon the parents the importance of attending. The claimant was then next seen by a health visitor at four months. No mention of the missed GP appointment at that uh, assessment of the health visitor. He'd also been seen by two nursery nurses for checks at both 15 weeks and five months. And again, no head circumference measurements were taken at any of those appointments. And again, no mention made of, it, of the missed GP appointment and no action was taken by either the health visitor at four months or those two nursery nurses on the apparent increase in head circumference relative to weight that had been noted at six weeks old. Throughout all of this time, whilst the head circumference was then not measured, the weight was measured and that remained fairly consistent at around the 25th centile. So, um, born in June, by late December, 2012, about six months old, the claimant child then began to display pretty troubling symptoms of increased intracranial pressure. Um, they became so troubling, in fact, that the parents took the baby to hospital, where his head circumference was measured and measured to be on the 99.6th centile. Um, his weight was still on the 25th centile. Acting on that, doctors found that the, the baby had a rare benign brain tumour, taken a surgery, successfully resected the tumour, 
But by that time, sadly, it was too late to prevent the child suffering permanent brain damage for, as a result of the sustained period of raised intracranial pressure caused by the presence of the, the expanding tumour. So the claimant virus parents uh, brought a case and alleged that the various health visitors and the nursery nurses were all negligent from the time of the six weeks check. And the six weeks check was the last head circumference measurement where the head circumference was at the 50th centile and the weight was at the 25th. Um, so neg negligent from that point in time was the claimant's case by failing to recognize the rate of head growth and the discrepancy with the weight by failing at a point in time to notice even visually uh, an unusually large head and also from failing to arrange for the claimant to see his GP or to refer directly to hospital. Now causation was accepted by the defendant trust um, at any of those points in time subject to the claimant proving a breach of duty and so that's what the trial was all about. Like any breach of duty trial, the judge, who in this case was Mr Justice Stewart, had to assess the standard of care. Um, now, because this is a case involving uh, nursery nurses and midwives, it wasn't quite so cut and dry and clear as to what the appropriate standard of care was. And so what Mr Justice Stewart did was to consider publications from places like the Department of Health, the WHO, the defendant's own standard operating procedures, uh, as well as from expert witnesses, health visitors and GPs. All of these sources combined to provide the court with uh, a raft of evidence which really supported a key theme, emphasising the importance of measuring the head circumference six weeks apart, six weeks apart because then you can determine whether two centile lines have been crossed within this apparently six weeks recognized minimum period. Now, the outlier in all of this analysis was the defendant's instructed health visitor expert, whose evidence was held to be illogical because simply it was, it was at odds, not just with the other experts, but also all of the medical literature and the textbooks on point. So, Looking at the precise standard of care, it was accepted that health visitors were not able or indeed expected to make a diagnosis themselves, but the evidence also made clear that health visitors would be expected to liaise with the GP if there were concerns over other conditions presenting with similar symptoms like hydrocephalus. And there's an obvious distinction, I think, isn't there, between speaking to the GP about concerns and then on the other hand, making a diagnosis. Court made absolutely clear that that's not the standard of care, just to speak to the GP. So applying that standard of care, Mr. Justice Stewart held that the health visitor attending at the six weeks check, that's the last one who did a head circumference measurement, replaced it at the 50th centile while the weight was much lower. They were negligent by failing to refer the claimant for medical opinion or to raise concerns with the GP given the discrepancy uh, and the gains in head circumference relative to weight. And Mr Justice Stewart also held that the health visitor attending at four months was negligent, negligent by failing to recommend the claimant for a, the GP check, failing to appreciate what by that stage was uh, a disproportionate head size visually, never mind taking the measuring tape out, and um, 
and also failing to measure the head themselves to, to check and to plot the further centile growth. Um, but no breaches of duty were found in relation to the two nursery nurses. Now, despite their title, nursery nurses are not nurses. Um, their role is to undertake work delegated to them by health visitors. So the expected standard of care of nursery nurses was lower than that of the health visitors. And on that basis, measuring head circumference and acting on head circumference measurements was not found to be within their usual roles. There was no duty on the nursery nurses to undertake the head circumference measurements or to act upon it. So if you've got time to look at the detailed judgment, you'll see that there's lots of evidence from various sources about the precise roles of health visitors and nursery nurses in the context of early child health checks. But the key, as ever, is to stand back and apply the established principles. So doing that, Mr Justice Stewart reiterated that the applicable standard of care was the standard of competence and skill to be expected from a person holding that post. The more skilled the job undertaken by the nurse, the higher the standard of care expected. So applying that to the evidence in this case, well, the measuring of head circumference is not a very highly skilled task, doesn't take much time, but there's clearly a great importance of doing it and doing it accurately. To put it back to front, put it another way, the potential consequences of not doing it vastly outweigh the burden of doing it. And there is also evidence in play to support health visitors being trained to recognise signs of hydrocephalus and to take action on that, even if they don't have the powers of diagnosis per se. Uh, and that was certainly one of the distinctions between health visitors and the nursery nurses, which justified the, the highest standard of care being imposed on the health visitors. So it, it's a case that I think is interesting on its own facts, but actually much like Darnley a few years ago, this is a case that's likely to be useful to anybody dealing with claims arising from care provided by anyone beyond your more typical doctors, nurses, midwives, etc. And uh, another impressive judgment from Mr. Justice Stewart. You'll see if you uh, click on our digest of the main cases of the year, a few of the other key cases involved him. Um, and, and you can see more of his work in the case summaries on, on our document that we've put together. So that, that was my number one case, Helena. No, that's really interesting. So presumably health visitors are sort of expected to put two and two together and realise that the head is growing disproportionately um, to the weight as it increases. Yeah, I mean, given the what the judgment says about how visually obvious things had got by the time, certainly the four months check, possibly a little bit surprised that actually the, the nursery nurses might not have been expected to recognise that as well even if measuring the head circumference wasn't part of their, their normal duty. But yes, certainly the case for health visitors. And in respect to the nursery nurses, they wouldn't be expected to do that job of putting two and two together because it's not part of their usual role. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They're, they're essentially just, um, I suppose, assistants for the health visitors and carry out work delegated by the health visitors I wonder if things might have been different if the health visitor 
perhaps at the six weeks check with that first sign of discrepancy of head circumference versus weight, if they had specifically delegated to mm. the nursery nurse, there are concerns, measure the head circumference, and then they didn't do it, whether the judgment against them might be different, but um, we, we don't know that. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, and, you, you know, as you say, presumably measuring the head is, is a pretty straightforward task compared to the risk if, if you don't do it or, or you get it wrong. Seems to be. It's, it's part of the ordinary workup of um, results that are being plotted in the early years or early weeks, um, growth charts and, and such things. And yet yeah, it seems amongst the various tests that they do to be one of the lower skilled jobs, essentially just taking out the fabric tape measure, plotting it around the right part of the head to ensure consistency and, and yeah, plotting the, uh, plotting the results on the centile chart. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for that, Nye. Um, should we move on to um, things to look out for for next year, or rather this year now? Yeah, well, what are you looking out for? Um, I think probably my top tip um, for things to look out for in 2021 has to be the tripartite of secondary victims cases coming into the Court of Appeal. Um, all of these cases are being appealed on the legal proximity limb of the Alcock control mechanisms. Um, the first of these is um, Paul and the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust. And our own Charles Baggett QC in Chambers appeared on behalf of the Trust um, in its application to strike out the claim. And that was heard by Master Cook. Um, very briefly, in this case, Mr. Paul was admitted to the defendant's hospital in 2012 uh, with chest and jaw pain. And uh, some tests were run um, and he was discharged. And then some 14 months later, he collapsed and very sadly passed away. And his two young daughters witnessed his last moments and brought claims as secondary victims. Um, part of the trust's strikeout application was premised on there not being sufficient proximity between the trust's negligence and the shocking event. Um, the negligence occurred uh, before the consequences of the negligence became evident. Um, clinical cases, uh, clinical negligence cases, have often failed on that basis. Um, you know the 2000, I'm sorry, 1993 case of Taylor and Somerset House Authority and the more recent 2014 case of Taylor and Anovo um, are often relied upon for that argument. Um, the strikeout application was successful and the claimant appealed and Mr Justice Chamberlain heard that appeal. Uh, the claimant argued that it was not necessary for there to be a temporal proximity um, to the between the negligence and the shocking event. Um, the defendant argued uh, that the heart attack and death were consequences of the alleged negligent treatment of Mr. Paul's heart disease and not capable of being the event um, as the secondary victims had not witnessed uh, the scene of the tort, um, which was the, of course, the alleged negligent treatment given to their father some 14 months um, earlier. Um, Mr. Justice Chamberlain found that the heart attack and, de and death could constitute the event, that is the event could be when the negligence manifests and so the appeal was allowed. Um, uh, the trust has permission to appeal that finding. 
Uh, the second case is that of Palmia and another and Royal Cornwall Hospital's NHS Trust. Um, the claimant's daughter sadly collapsed and died on the 1st of July 2015 with an undiagnosed pathology. And both of her parents were present and both suffered PTSD. Um, liability for failure to diagnose in January 2015 was admitted. Uh, there was again here, as in Paul, and in many other such cases, uh, a period of delay between the negligence and the death. Again, an application was brought to strike out the claim, and that application was heard by Master Cook again, who of, of course heard the uh, application at first instance in Paul. Um, the defendant's primary submission was that the claim could not satisfy the Alcott control mechanism of proximity. And Master Cook found that the shocking event did not need to coincide with or immediately precede the first actionable damage. And so did not strike out the claim as he couldn't say that it was bound to fail. And in any event, he considered himself bound by the appeal decision in Paul. And so he granted uh, permission to appeal direct to the Court of Appeal. And finally, we have the case of Purchase and Dr. Mahmoud Ahmed, uh, which was a county court case. Uh, the defendant again applied to strike out the claimant's secondary victim claim. Uh, District Judge uh, Lum uh, struck out the claim on the basis that the test for legal proximity was not satisfied. Um, and the judge granted permission uh, to the Court of Appeal on the basis of the High Court's grant of permission to appeal Master Cook's decision in the matter of Paul. Uh, the matter of purchase was heard in May, two weeks before the appeal in Paul was heard. Um, I'm reliably informed uh, that there are pending applications in the Court of Appeal for the court to consider whether to link the three appeals, Paul, Palmere and Purchase, for a joint hearing on appeal to consider a range of different factual circumstances on this question of legal proximity. Um, so it's been, you know, five to seven years since the last series of important secondary victims claims were determined, uh, the likes of Wilde, Shorter and Ronyane. Um, so it's going to be an important year for such cases. Um, one of these cases will, of course, need to reach the Supreme Court for Taylor to be overturned. But we have here an opportunity for the court to take another look at this important point of principle. Um, the circumstances in which the control mechanisms for proximity can be satisfied by a claimant bringing a claim for damages as a secondary victim uh, when the negligence complained of and the uh, of the proceed uh, and the and the sudden shocking event um, are not proximus and give rise to uh, psychiatric injury. Um, so it's very important for us to have clarity on what constitutes the relevant event uh, for the purposes of establishing proximity, which is always um, a thorn in the side of clinical negligence cases. Um, so yeah. that's what we should look out for, I think. Yeah, the uh, pretty narrow, often described as arbitrary rules for the secondary victims cases as they've evolved over time don't really seem to lend themselves to your, your classic clinical negligence type scenarios where you have a, a bit of a gap from not just time but often sometimes venue between the the breach and the consequences of, of the breach so yeah absolutely crying out for some clarity here how much clarity it will bring remains to be seen I think as this is only going to as you say <laughs> concentrate on on one strand of, of the many strand test but yeah. Um, yeah, the, the more clarity the better any idea when we'd like to hear if these appeals are going to be conjoined 
Um, I don't have an update yet, but I will see if I can find out and certainly keep you posted. Watch your space. Yeah. How about you? What should we be looking out for uh, this year on the Clinic scene? Well, uh, firstly, I suppose the, the COVID effects, and I'm already starting to see the impact of COVID on arguments in cases. So, for example, I do a lot of delay in diagnosing cancer cases, and it, it adds an extra layer of difficulty, particularly in causation, in order sh to show when any patient would have been seen had they been referred, if, say, you're dealing with a, a GP failure to refer case. The impact of COVID adds an extra layer of uncertainty, so you're going to need now to prove, would the claimants have been reluctant to attend hospital, given the strain on the NHS at any particular time, or perhaps even the, the patient's fear of catching COVID if they go into to hospital? Um, but not just causation, we also see its economic implications for loss of earnings and other types of uh, damages arguments as well. Um, and possibly whether the general periods of hiatus for non-urgent treatment that have been well publicised and the latitude, I think, given to defendants on breach of duty when taking into account the strain on the NHS that, that COVID has had, whether that's going to be a a knock-on effect of fewer cases coming through the pipeline and, and I think that's probably a bit too early to tell that latter point at, at this stage. So that's number one and um, number two while we're talking about fewer cases we've had an announcement of sorts earlier this year by Nadine Dorries on, on behalf of the Department of Health that apparently they're seriously looking at some sort of no-fault compensation scheme with the aim of reducing the NHS litigation bill. No further detail, not much further detail than that, I'm afraid. And um, quite often we've, we've seen that there's uh, a gap, can be said, between what this government says and, and what it does. But it um, always seems to me to be an odd way of trying to reduce the amount of compensation by effectively removing the test for breach of duty, which has got to, I think, widen the pool of claimants rather than reduce it. Um, seems, seems very odd. And certainly in, in most no-fault schemes around the world, you still need to prove causation, or at least of sorts, and it still involves lawyers. So the only way that a, a no-fault scheme, I think, could reduce the NHS litigation bill rather than increase it, would be that it would need to go hand-in-hand hand with a more radical shape-up of recoverable damages and the extent to which lawyers are involved and I haven't got any more detail on that at this stage so um, some things to look forward to more than others <laughs> perhaps. Yeah it's very interesting I mean you know uh, at least in my clinical negligence practice the great majority of arguments are in respect of causation which are very complicated and, and need careful handling um so unless you know the the government is going to recommend some kind of fixed cost regime uh, to bring the overall budget down I, I don't really see how um uh, opening the gates in respect of breach of duty is going to help particularly yeah yeah i'm, I'm with you on that so that's our, our clinical negligence review of the year. And then if anyone listening or watching has any questions, then please feel free to email either Helena or I directly uh, and also look out for the link uh, on the website to the digestive cases.
Great, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.